Hello everyone, welcome to History of Asia. In the last episode, we talked about the history of Shiism and 12 Rism in particular, currently the dominant creed in Iran. We've seen that 12 Rism differs from the Sunni mainstream in more than one respect. Quick recap, because this will be important to keep in mind today. Twelvers place the sayings of the Imams on almost equal footing with the Quran itself. They believe that the last of these Imams has gone into occultation and that he will someday return to kickstart a new era. This suggests the possibility of reopening the prophetic cycle. In fact, the biggest festival in the Islamic Republic, now Rus, celebrates the rebirth of the universe at the end of the cosmic cycle. Shiites stress the martyrdom of their Imams, and especially that of Hossein, grandson of the Prophet, whose betrayal and hero's death is remembered on the day of Ashura. And last but not least, Shiites have a tendency to denounce earthly authority and instead seek salvation in spirituality. This has deeply affected the history of Iran until this day. Today, we will see that all of this is connected to Iran's pre-Islamic past. Before the arrival of the Arab Muslims, Iran, like most of the Middle East, was under the thumb of a Persian dynasty called the Sassanids or the Sasanians. They practiced and promoted a fascinating religion called Zoroastrianism. It's almost forgotten today, but it has left a lasting mark on other world religions. While Mesopotamia adopted Islam relatively quickly after the Muslim conquests, in the Iranian mountains this would take centuries longer. And most of this time, Muslims and Zoroastrians would live side by side. It was only when the Abbasids made Muslimhood a precondition to apply for government positions that the Islamization of Iran really switched into next gear. By then, Zoroastrians and Muslims had plenty of time to get to know one another. When shortly after, a local mountain people called the Buyids took control of the region, they didn't adopt mainstream Islam, but Twelver Shiism, a sect that had only just come into its own. As we will talk about Zoroastrianism and other pre-Islamic Iranian religions today, it will become plain that they have a lot in common with Twelverism. Given the long religious coexistence in the region, that can hardly have been total coincidence if you ask me. But even if it were, well, that would be interesting too, wouldn't it? The deepest roots of Zoroastrianism are mostly unknown to us. But what is clear is that it evolved out of the shamanistic cults of Central Asian nomads. At the head of their pantheon, there were a handful of deities, Varuna, Mitra, who was associated with fire and oats, and finally, Ahura Mazda. The latter became the supreme deity of Zoroastrianism, but fire and truth remained sacred as well. Zoroastrians worshipped Mazda in fire temples, and he was associated with truth, while their version of the devil, Ariman, was known as the lie. Now, like most world religions, Zoroastrianism has its own prophet, the legendary founder, Zarathustra, received a revelation in which Ahura Mazda revealed to him that he was the god of good and that he had created all benign beings. His enemy was the demon of lies, who was at the root of all evil. 
truth and untruth were engaged in an epic struggle which was fought in different guises over different periods, including now by people on Earth. There was no doubt that Mazda would come out on top, but even so, humans would have a part to play in this cosmic battle. They could help Mazda by thinking good thoughts, speaking good words, and performing good deeds. And this was groundbreaking, for this is the first known example of a religion that makes people choose between good and evil. In the afterlife, each person would be judged on his words, thoughts, and deeds, and at the end of each cosmic cycle, evil would be destroyed and the dead would be resurrected into a new world. Thus spoke Zarathustra. That last line is, of course, the title of a famous book by Friedrich Nietzsche. If you ever heard about Zarathustra, that's probably the reason. Nietzsche revolted against the idea of another world in which all things would automatically turn out fine. And since Zarathustra was supposedly the first person to propagate moral choices, the philosopher chose him as the main character for his book. But this Zarathustra is of course a literary figure. What about the real Zarathustra? Most scholars seem to agree that he was a real person, but it's completely unknown where or when he lived. He is generally situated somewhere in or around Iran. I think the most often quoted location is Bactria, but many other places have been proposed as well. And when it comes to dating, guesses differ more than a thousand years. Some place him in the 16th century BCE, others in the 6th. It's no exaggeration then to say that the origins of Zoroastrianism are kind of blurry. The reason why the last possible date is in the 500s BCE, however, is because we know for a fact that at that time Zoroastrianism was already being practiced in some form by the Achaemenids, the famous rulers of the first Persian Empire. The Achaemenids had their roots in Central Asia, where Zoroastrianism probably originated. But theirs was a very different sort of Zoroastrianism, of which we know little, except that things like telling the truth were already super important. For the Achaemenids, lying was considered a terrible crime. But they don't give the prophet Zarathustra any attention at all, it seems. So their early version of Zoroastrianism is sometimes referred to as Mazdaism, after their main god. The Achaemenids would be destroyed by Alexander the Great, and Iran was thereafter ruled by his Seleucid successors for centuries, albeit mostly in name. These were then slowly driven out by a nomadic people from the steppes, the Parthians, who it seems also took on Mazda worship, even as they called themselves Philhellenes or friends of the Greeks. And then, when the Parthian Empire was at its lowest ebb, a religious revolution took place. Iran's history is packed with such revolutions, but this may have been the first of its kind. In the region of Persis, which happens to be the homeland of the old Achaemenid kings, a priestly family took power, and these were the famous or infamous Sasanians. They would expand their power until they dominated most of the Middle East. They were not unseated until the advent of the Muslims in the 7th century CE, and it is they who would turn Zoroastrianism into a form of state religion. So the Sasanians were not descended from kings, instead they had been vassals of the Parthians. They had probably sworn oaths of loyalty to them, 
and given how important such oaths were, they would now have to clarify why they were allowed to break them. They explained away their power grab as the will of God. Ardashir, their first king, claimed that Aruhura Mazda had tasked him with driving out the Persians because they were servants of the lie. This was in fact a lie in itself, for the Persians clearly had nothing against Mazda. On the contrary, there are strong indications that they worshipped this deity themselves, but it would not be the first time that an Iranian king legitimized his aggression against others by calling them liars. The truth that mattered was his version of the truth. If you denied it, you were a liar. Postmodernism avant la lettre, you might say. So from the very beginning, Zoroastrianism was super important for the Sasanians. It legitimized their rise to power and hence their kingship. So it's only logical that the religion would be given a central position in the empire. They almost immediately gave the order to write down the Zoroastrians' holy texts, the Avesta. This, by the way, was around the same time when the Talmud and the Christian Canaan were also compiled, the former even within the Sasanian Empire. So this was really in vogue back then. Previously, everything had depended on oral traditions. Or, as the Sasanians put it, the sacred words hit here too resided in the hearts of those that knew the true religion. So it's not without reason that we know so little about Zoroastrianism before the Sasanians, even if it may have been around for more than a millennium in one form or another. The very act of writing it down changed its nature, however. There must have been lots of other versions, and these were now denied legitimacy. And this would by no means be the last revision of the Zoroastrian sacred text. Zoroastrianism is difficult to categorize. It has monotheistic, dualistic and polytheistic threats. The relationship between good and evil is similar to that between the Christian God and the devil. In orthodox Zoroastrianism, the final triumph of good is beyond dispute, but evil is equally uncreated. Why indeed would a benevolent God bring evil into being? Therefore, the Zoroastrian devil is a formidable opponent, even if he will ultimately prove no match for the Mazda. In fact, the demon of lies is supposed to have created evil beings himself, more specifically through the act of self-sodomization, which already suggests that these people were not as open-minded toward homosexuality as the Greeks had been. They thought that whoever performed sodomy would be punished in the afterlife by a snake entering the body from behind and then working its way up and escaping through the mouth. When it came to imagining such infernal punishments, they were in the same league as Dante or Jeroen Bos. So you had the one good god, you had the devil, and finally you had lesser divine beings, similar to saints or angels in Catholicism. So what kind of religion was Zoroastrianism at the end of it all? In fact, this became a rather important question when Islam took over. Muslims were to protect the people of the book, as long as they paid chizya. And this would encompass the Christians and the Jews, clearly, while Hindus were theoretically excluded. But the Zoroastrians were a difficult matter. They had their holy book, but its roots differed from those of the Quran, though not as much as you might think. But were they monotheistic, at least? Did they accept the only one true God? 
At first, many thought that the answer was no, and in the early stages of the Muslim occupation, there were many violent attacks on fire temples, priests and believers. Later, though, it became clear that it was unpractical to alienate what was still the biggest religious group in Iran. So for a long time, there was tolerance and coexistence between the two religions, which allowed them to influence one another. In reality, many religions share elements of monotheism, dualism and polytheism, and the accent tends to change depending on the circumstances. In this regard, Zoroastrianism is no different. The early Sasanians declared that their triumph was due to Ahura Mazda, but that didn't mean that the whole of Iran would now worship their victorious god. In fact, even the Sasanians themselves had been priests of Anahita, not of Mazda. The Parsians had been very hands-off when it came to people's beliefs, as had the regimes that came before them. Consequently, the region was very diverse religiously. Under these conditions, it came in handy that other gods could be presented as some kind of angels who acted on behalf of Ahura Mazda in his epic battles. In this way, local cults were smoothly integrated within a Zoroastrian pantheon, without much practical change, as often happens with polytheistic religions. Conversion could be almost a symbolic step at this initial stage. That wouldn't last, though. One reason why the religious landscape was so diverse was that the political control of former empires had been so fragile too. Especially in Iran, the oversight of the Parsians had been almost nominal. Same thing under the Greeks and Macedonians. The Sasanians, however, had bigger ambitions. They wanted to centralize power, and religion would be their tool to do it. Ardashir found willing allies in the priests of his chosen religion, the Magi. They provided an early boost to his propaganda campaign by claiming that his coming had been foretold. The king tasked the high priest to compile an official version of the Avesta. For how can you ever enforce an orthodoxy without an official version, right? All religious texts that were deemed to deviate from the official viewpoint were now banned. By contrast, when the caliph ordered the compilation of the official Quran, that was the result of a very different process involving the meticulous comparison of eyewitness accounts of the Prophet's life. And these were still very numerous at that point. While when the Avesta was compiled, Zarathustra had been dead for many centuries. This made it harder to separate fact from fiction, I suppose. That didn't seem to bother the Magi, however. They became the willing enforcers of the new orthodoxy. In practice, this meant that they would be in the forefront of a great war against evil, which would in many respects turn out to be a battle against defilement. The, the Magi were in charge of the rituals of purification, and this, in time, became an obsession for them. The greater the need for extirpating evil, the bigger their influence. Note that this has long been a fixation for Shiite scholars too. In Qom, many ulama devoted their lives to studying rituals and rules concerning purity and uncleanliness. This is only one of many aspects of the current Iranian religion that seems to hark back to pre-Islamic times. I wonder to what extent that the Ayatollahs are aware of that. Like the Shiite scholars of Qom, the Magi retreated in seminaries, 
to memorize and discuss rites, formulas, and sacred texts. And this taught them what was unclean and what to do about that. In practice, this gave them immense power. They are not called magi for nothing. And make no mistake, in a society where practically everyone believes in magic, its effects are very real indeed. That included the magi themselves, by the way. It's perhaps tempting to think that they were just playing a role and only cared for the power that it gave them, but it rarely works that way. They no doubt took their studies and work very seriously. So what kind of purification did the clergy promote? Well, some of their precepts would be welcome even today, like keeping rivers clean. Others, many of us, would seem as revolting. For instance, it was prohibited to defile the earth with corpses. Evil spirits might carry the soul to hell while the body of the deceased rotted. Couldn't let that happen, obviously. So instead, the dead had to be placed in the open, to be devoured by wild dogs and birds of prey. Some were horrified by this, including the later Muslim conquerors, and I suspect many people would still find this barbaric today. If I remember correctly, I even had to learn in school that one of the first marks of civilization is when humans started burying their dead. Now, I try to be more open-minded than that, but there were some Zoroastrian regulations that would make even the biggest cultural relativist shudder, such as to need to keep the blood pure through incestuous marriages. Now, by placing so much emphasis on defilement and purification, the clergy, in a way, undermined the tenets of their own religion. For if you see defilement anywhere, if it constantly needs to be exercised, doesn't that mean that evil is pretty powerful? Like any other monotheistic religion, Zoroastrianism wrestled with the question how the omnipotence of a good god could be reconciled with the ubiquity of evil. Some concluded that the powers of good could not be all-powerful after all, and therefore placed the devil on equal footing. This gave rise to the theory that truth and untruth were both created by a supreme being. This dualistic view was contrary to orthodox Zoroastrianism, but as I said, the Magi unwittingly reinforced it themselves through their constant fear-mongering. This dualism became deeply embedded within the Iranian worldview. The Shiite scholar's obsession with purity is just one example. Through the ages, Iran has been portrayed by its leaders as an island in a sea of corruption. Sometimes for cynical reasons, obviously, but this would presumably not have had the same effect if not for this uninterrupted cultural legacy dating back to ancient times. There is another now extinct religion to thank for this, one that also emerged in the early days of the Sasanian Empire, Manichaeism. In modern parlance, a Manichaean is someone who judges exclusively in terms of black and white, right or wrong, with no room for middle ground. But the term refers back to an actual belief system, named after its founder, a prophet called Mani. His creed was the Necpus Ultra of pessimism. Everywhere he turned his gaze, Mani saw the hand of evil, and he concluded that it had truly overpowered everything. The light was held captive by the darkness of the world. All matter was bad, with a capital B. Only the spirit was good. 
As for humans, Mani would agree with Nick Cave. You can see it everywhere you look. People just ain't no good. That is to say, Mani considered human bodies to be unclean and sinful. The soul was good, but salvation was only possible if it could be freed from desire. This, I think, leans closely to an idea that Sufi mystics flirt with too. That one can come closer to God by detaching oneself from one's bodily shell. Or as Rumi would have it, the biggest idol is your own ego. Even Ali supposedly warned his followers to steer clear of this world. It could even be argued that the cult of martyrdom is the logical endpoint of such a view. The belief that the world is false makes a good death so much more attractive, doesn't it? While Mani would indeed become a martyr himself, that wasn't really his goal. He preached that people had to forego any bodily pleasures, from food over music to sex, especially sex, which for him was the original sin. He claimed that when the first couple first had intercourse, that was when the light was entrapped within the darkness. And each time people made love, it became worse. Now, you might think that a people that believes this would soon go extinct, but Mani didn't intend to let his revelation die with him. He enlisted legions of scribes who translated his work into multiple languages and circulated them as widely as possible. Like Zoroastrianism, Mani also had clever ways to facilitate conversion. He preached mostly in Mesopotamia, which was a melting pot of religions, and he made room for the prophets of such religions, like Jesus, Zarathustra, the Buddha, and yes, even Plato. He said that he, Mani, was the seal of prophets, something that Muhammad would repeat a couple of centuries later. So Mani fully embraced the notion of a prophetic cycle. Besides, the links to the Buddha and Plato were not all that far-fetched either. Buddhism is all about detachment too, and Mani went to India, where he probably studied their teachings. Perhaps he even copied some of their missionary and monastic practices. And um, Plato, in his Allegory of the Cave, tells us about an ideal world of forms, knowledge of which is superior to that of the illusory world that we live in. Unwise people don't see the light, just the shadows on the cave wall, all that. Mani borrowed whatever he fancied from other belief systems, and thereby he made his own ideas more appealing to their followers. Most of all, however, Mani appealed to the Zoroastrians, who after all were still in the majority, at least in the Iranian heartland and among the elite. Mani wrapped his stories in the terminology and the godly universe of Zoroastrianism, but apart from such superficial similarities, his aversion to the world was completely at odds with the basic values of that religion. Zoroastrians held that all the beauty and pleasure of the world comes from Mazda. And therefore, you didn't just have the right to enjoy the fruits of the earth, you had the duty to appreciate it. While Mani uh, banned music, citations from the Avesta were supposed to be accompanied by musical instruments. And while Mani saw sex as sinful, for the Zoroastrians, procreation was no less than a sacred duty. Life is a gift, don't be ungrateful. I imagine Nietzsche would have applauded, while he would no doubt have hated Manichaeism. The Magi did too. And yet, Mani might not have become so influential 
if the Sasanian king of kings had not given him permission to preach and make converts. Strikingly, this was the same powerful king who built a strong centralized state around a stratified Zoroastrian priesthood. Isn't that contradictory? Well, perhaps not. If you give so much power to these magi, wouldn't it be prudent to counterbalance that power somehow? By granting Mani official tolerance, perhaps he was saying to the priests, we form a great team, but know that at the end of the day, I am the one who has the last word, and I say Mani can do as he pleases. What will you do about it? Well, nothing at first, but as soon as power shifted their way, they would do plenty. They convinced the later king to start persecuting the Manichaeans. Their oppression no doubt reinforced their ideas that the world was evil. But by the time that they fell from grace, they had already spread far beyond the Persian Empire. To Central Asia, for instance, where the fate remained alive and kicking for another millennium. It even made its way into China, and it left a deep mark on various religions. The parallels with Shiite Islam seem clear enough, but the impact on Christianity is even more obvious. The Church Father Augustine, perhaps the most influential of the lot, used to be a Manichaean himself, and it shows, most of all, in his emphasis on original sin, which would have a huge impact. The attitude of the Vatican towards sex today seems a long way from the Old Testament's Mary, go forth and multiply. But the religion that was most influenced by the Manichaeans was no doubt Zoroastrianism. According to Zoroastrian orthodoxy, it was taboo to weep when someone died, because the soul of the deceased would have to cross a river, like the Styx, and tears would make the stream become too broad to cross. In certain areas of the empire, however, mourning rituals became so extreme that they even came to involve self-flagellation and cutting one's face, as some Shiites still do on Ashura when they commemorate the murder of Imam Hussein. Speaking of which, in Sasanian times, there also appeared a holiday on which the martyrdom of an innocent Persian hero was lamented. And that while mourning was originally forbidden, is it crazy to suspect Mani's influence lingering behind such evolutions? But influence or no, when the king could no longer stand up to the Magi, they had Mani tortured to death. Perhaps it was inevitable that the Sasanians would lose control of their priests. They had built their legitimacy on them and their institutions. But this would change everything. Ever since Alexander the Great, Persia's kings had claimed descent from the gods. Now, however, the Magi put an end to that. They reduced the king of kings to a devoted subject of Ahura Mazda, while religion became their exclusive domain. The kings could not influence the clerical hierarchy. The jurisdiction and authority of the individual magi depended purely on their religious title. By contrast, they would get to decide who sat on the throne. If a king went against their wishes, if he was too tolerant of other fates, they had him murdered or otherwise replaced. This could prove detrimental to the empire, not so much because it created instability at the top, the institutions were strong enough to survive that, but because religious minorities were important, for the trading business, among other things. The Sasanian Empire occupied a crucial spot on the Silk Road, and long-distance trade could be very lucrative indeed. 
the priests' aversion to merchants could prevent the empire from taking full advantage of that. So what was it like to live in an empire where the clergy pulled practically all the strings? Well, it reminds me of medieval Europe. Every aspect of life was determined by religion, literally from dawn till dusk. As a morning routine, you had to wash your hands and face with the urine of a sheep, and then mercifully with water too. Before you left the house, you had to put on a sacred girdle, as a sign that you were a follower of Mazda. You had to pray three times a day, and at least once visit the local fire temple. Of course, you were also expected to join in festivities like Nauruz, the feast of the Zoroastrian equinox. Perhaps most importantly, as a believer, you had to confess your sins before the priests. We often think that because of big data and such, the Chinese now have reached levels of supervision that, have, that are unsurpassed in history, but ages ago, the Magi already used a more sophisticated method of mind control the idea of sinfulness and confession. You hardly have to monitor people's thoughts and actions. They do it themselves, out of intrinsic motivation. Low-tech, but very effective. The Magi's influence also encapsulated people's deepest hopes and fears. It's important to keep in mind that this was a time before science offered explanations to everything. If you had a toothache, your first thought would not be to eat less sugar, it would be that some evil spirit was tormenting you, that you could seek out some sorcerer to chase him away, or perhaps buy an amulet for protection. There are endless descriptions of demons and what they could supposedly do. And this encompassed literally everything. For instance, Shashmach caused earthquakes. Pani made you hoard your food. If your husband didn't love you anymore, you had a problem with the demon Az. Some de devils refer to sacred figures of rival religions. The demon Bud, for instance, was probably the Buddha. He was believed to be a deceiver and a spreader of illness. By the way, such demonization of other gods and saints is quite common. Biblical devils like Baal and Beelzebub were revered by Canaanites and Philistines, respectively. But the effect was that it made the threat all, all the more palpable if someone prayed to a non-Zoroastrian god, in the eyes of a believer, he was literally worshipping the devil. Luckily, the priests were always there to help. They could, for instance, chase away a demon by twice reciting a secret mantra. There was a flourishing market in charms of white magic, which would protect from evil spells and the like. And uh, human nature being what it is, I think it's safe to assume a black market where people sold black magic, talismans, curses and potions that would inflict harm on others. Even today, Iran is full of blue-white amulets with depictions of an eye. I'm sure you'd recognize it if you saw one. These are supposed to protect against the evil eye, an evil spirit that was already feared in pre-Islamic times. Any such spells or religious artifacts would only work, though, when spoken or blessed by the Magi. Remember that line we quoted earlier? Power lies where people think it lies? Imagine the power you would have if people believed you could curse or bless them, cure them or make them sick simply by uttering a few words or making a sign. And it was not, this was not just true for the individual, but for the whole community and even the state. 
The Magi were also needed to implore a fine har harvest, for example, or success in war. Is it any wonder, then, that they took over the entire kingdom? Indeed, the cleric's influence went far beyond the spiritual. Whenever you dealt with the authorities, or you had to close a transaction, as a rule of thumb, nothing was legal and nothing was official unless it bore the Magi's seal of approval. They even oversaw tax collection. In many respects, they were the state. They were also the law. Laws and judges' verdicts were based on the Avesta, much like Sharia law is based on the Quran. So like later ulama, religious experts would be best placed to act as judges. Given their influence and pivotal position, it will be no surprise that they also managed to accumulate a lot of wealth. In so-called fire temples, the Magi kept Ahura Mazda's sacred fire burning at all times, a bit like Roman virgins in the Temple of Vesta. Every Sasanian king would commission the building of such temples and provide for the land and slaves needed for the upkeep of the Magi who tended to the fires. The nobles would follow suit, and some ordinary people even voluntarily worked for the priests, hoping it would help them on Judgment Day, no doubt. Gifts to fire temples were presumably also a way to safeguard one's possessions from confiscation. This all reminds us of the Islamic foundations, like boniats or waqf, which might well be inspired by these fire temples. Besides, the fire temples also performed social functions, many of which would later be handled by Islamic foundations too. In short, in almost any respect, Iran was run by the clergy, much like today. But with great power also comes great responsibility. The magicians were the face of the state, and consequently, when in the waning days of the empire that state fell short, they were held responsible. The stage was then set for a reformation, and the Zoroastrian looter, like the Protestant one, would be a priest himself. How could it be otherwise? There was hardly any power that could rival with the Zoroastrian church. But there were plenty of tensions within their ranks. Zoroastrianism was never truly unified. There always remained regional variations. Like in Islam, in the seminaries, there was tension between mystical and rational approaches to religious law. Greek and Indian philosophical insights were used and even integrated into the Avesta, but at the same time, certain magi examined signs of God or took psychedelic drugs to evoke revelations. Also, the Avesta was open to interpretation and written in an old language that most priests couldn't understand. So some respected magi took it upon themselves to write commentaries. Some of these, however, implied understandings of the Avesta that were deemed beyond the pale by the clerical leadership. Some indeed went above and beyond the actual text, looking for so-called hidden meanings, like some Sufi masters and Shiite preachers later did with the Quran. Despite keeping up the appearance of a unified religion, the Zoroastrian church had to deal with such heresies all the time. On the other end of the spectrum, there were priests who could be seen as the equivalent of the Wahhabis, literalists who dismissed any commentary or interpretation. As far as they were concerned, only the word of Zarathustra was to be accepted, 
in a way you could see what they were where they were coming from for unlike the quran of which any amendment is considered unthinkable the avesta would be re-edited multiple times during the sasanian period but an extra problem with the originalist standpoint in this case was that nobody could prove what the original text was zarathustra lived so long ago we don't even know in what millennium and during all these centuries no one had bothered to write down what he said so how confident could anyone say this here is the original message perhaps this fact undercut efforts to unify the church from the very beginning this agreement was perhaps inevitable in the eyes of the priesthood the worst of these heresies was no doubt mazdakism the movement was started in the turbulent autumn years of the sasanian empire by a priest named mazdak the zoroastrian looter as i called him earlier he was disgusted by what he saw as an obsession with rules and rituals and perhaps most of all with the cleric's hunger for power and riches he preached that the people should instead focus on good deeds that was the way of helping in the struggle against evil this was a time of hunger and want so it was obvious to him that the rich and powerful should do something about that he also pleaded for more humility on their part and he wanted to put an end to the privileges of the elite for example he wanted to curb the polygamy of the wealthy those who have heard the earlier episodes haven't we seen this movie before now mazdak has been presented as some sort of proto-communist who wanted to do away with private property altogether it was even claimed that he wanted to turn women into common property too this might not be so implausible as it sounds given the fact that they were considered private property before but it's equally possible that this was pure slander for as you can imagine like any radical reformer mazdak made some powerful enemies along the way you might expect him to end up burning at the stake but to continue the analogy how did luther manage to survive and continue his revolution well he was protected by powerful people who resented the meddling of the catholic church and welcomed anyone who could do something about that mazdak for his part was protected by the sasanian monarch the king had been waiting for an opportunity to cut the magi down to size and the high nobility too now he could do that by embracing a renewed religion of the people and thereby increase his own popular appeal all in one stroke it was a gift from heaven encouraged by mazdak the king ordered that grain be distributed among the needy poor this cannot have been unpopular i think in fact even the priests would find it hard to explain why this would be wrong perhaps that's why they focused on mazdak's so-called false prostitution policy perhaps he did force women into whorehouses but it seems more plausible that he simply denied that people had an obligation to marry inside their own group and preferably even within their own family as mazdak's enemies put it sons wouldn't know who their fathers were anymore the real problem supposedly was that it undermined the caste society with all the priestly privileges that this entailed indeed even in western democracies today in certain circles there is still social pressure to marry within your own group and this perpetuates inequality it makes class societies more like caste societies 
In fact, if you ask me, if rich people were to marry poor people more often, that would spectacularly reduce inequality. Of course, that's unlikely to happen, if only because most people feel they have little in common with people of dissimilar backgrounds and are therefore less likely to fall in love with them, perhaps. But it helps if such love is not frowned upon by the family, let alone by the state and the priesthood. The struggle between Mazdakites and their enemies was not a foregone conclusion, but eventually the Counter-Reformation won the day. Story has it that the preacher was invited to the king's garden to come see how the trees he planted had borne fruit, and there he would find many Mazdakites buried with their heads down and their feet sticking out of the ground. He was then killed there himself. Despite the crackdown that followed, Mazdakism managed to survive, especially in regions that mostly eluded the grasp of the state, like Arabia, where there soon appeared a new prophet who also advocated equality among believers and who also put limits on polygamy. Some of Zoroastrianism's untreated illnesses would be cured by Islam. As we discussed in the first series, the five pillars of Islam all had to do with humility. Muhammad made helping the poor mandatory. For women too, Islamic practice was unmistakably an improvement. The Muslims also put an end to priestly privileges, needless to say, while Islamic scholars for their part had no similar claims to superhuman powers, as Islam recognizes no medium between the believer and God. So in some ways, Islam built on and completed Zoroastrianism's reformation. The king of kings had already begun to do that himself, however. The nobility and the clergy had no doubt hoped that their favorite king, who had crushed the Mazdakites, would now restore them to their old position. He meant to do nothing of the sort, however. These were the people that had always given the Sasanian kings trouble, and now Mazdak's reforms had fatally weakened them. In the meantime, an alternative had presented itself. Most noblemen were living as absentee landlords and left the management of local affairs, including taxation, to the gentry known as decans. These men also took up the task of recruiting troops, often by enlisting nomads as mercenaries. Now that they controlled taxation and the army, the decans could become the new foundation of the empire. The court, meanwhile, was crippled by factional strife and so was prevented from doing much about it. In the 4th century, the clerical institutions had been so stable that they kept functioning no matter what incompetent sat on the throne. By now, it was the decentralized system of the decans that worked so smoothly that things could stay afloat despite the occasional chaos at the top. In fact, it even kept functioning after the fall of the empire and the occupation by the Arabs. This partly explains the relatively smooth conquest of Iran. Many decans struck a deal with the Arab invaders. They could then keep their post, also because their expertise was badly needed anyway. Only later were they gradually pushed out of power, which made many of them turn on the Umayyads and place their hopes in the Abbasids instead. They also cherished and thereby kept alive the memory of the heyday of the Sasanian Empire through its tales, poems, and habits. It's for people like them that Ferdowsi wrote his epic Shahnameh. Some also kept cherishing the old Zoroastrian fate. 
The Muslims sacked and destroyed fire temples and built their mosques on the ruins. So for the remaining believers, the demon worshippers that the Magi had always warned them about had now taken over. These must have been frightful times to live through, apocalyptic ones even. So I guess it's only natural that the remaining Zoroastrians would start longing for a savior, would reverse this downward spiral, and they had reasons to feel hopeful, for Zarathustra had prophesied the coming of a savior who would end the war against evil. He would be born from the prophet's own seed, magically preserved at the bottom of a lake. So, by the time these Zoroastrians finally converted to Islam, they were already quite familiar with the concept of a hidden messiah. As we've seen, Twelver Shiism proclaims the advent of a savior too, a direct descendant of the prophet no less. Trans-Muslims and Zoroastrians lived side by side for centuries, and they would have plenty of time to influence one another. The inclusion of Zoroastrian elements in Persian Islam, or is it the other way around, would lead to a nearly custom-made interpretation of the new faith, Twelver Shiism. It sounds like a perfect example of ancient history continuing to influence things, right? Perhaps too perfect. There are things that make this tale less intelligible, and less inevitable too. When the Buyids embraced Twelver Shiism, the majority of the population didn't follow suit. Most Iranians remained Sunni. The majority only adopted Twelverism after the Safavids forced it upon them by force and with the help of foreign scholars. If that doesn't happen, then this whole episode makes a lot less sense. Maybe, just maybe, the similarities between Iran's current religion and that of its late antiquity are not due to causal influence, at least not to the extent that this episode has insinuated. But if that were the case, then what would account for all these parallels? That would be even more intriguing, wouldn't it? I never claim to have all the answers. If you do, be sure to let me know. In any case, thank you so much for listening. If you liked hearing about the Sasanians, then you're in luck, because we'll talk more about them next time. Talk to you then. Take care. Bye.